I am very pleased today to introduce you to Aaron Sterwinski, who is with Carnegie Mellon University and responsible for running the Technology Enhanced Learning Program. Aaron is a learning engineer. And as many of us know, the field of learning engineering is starting to both peak, prod, and perplex many of us working in the learning and technology fields because more than anything, we're not quite sure exactly what it is. It sounds cool. It sounds technology-like. And it sounds sort of like what we've been doing, but harder. With that, Aaron, I'm looking to you to help us understand what this learning engineering thing is from the perspective of somebody who lives it and breathes it every day. Tell us about your job. Tell us what this looks like through your eyes. Thanks, Ellen. Yeah, I'd love to. It's something that I've been wanting to talk about with a lot of different people because I feel like it's kind of an evolution coming out of instructional design, but thinking about things just slightly differently. And I think what that is, is this design for data is the best way I can approach it. I'm used to using all of the same things that a instructional designer uses from their toolkit, interleaving and making sure that I'm designing instruction in a way that will help students, learners reach mastery. But now it's a little finer grained because I'm also trying to think of what is the data that's going to come out of these systems that we now can develop learning on, these platforms and, and online systems, and thinking about when I get the data out of these systems, what is it telling me? What is it measuring? And in order for that data to actually be usable, it requires more careful design and thought into things that I didn't really think of as an instructional designer. I was thinking of the course as a whole and exposing content in a way that learners can consume it and do what they need to do to reach that mastery. But now I'm thinking even further than that. I'm thinking, okay, when I design a question in one of these systems, what are those distractors? In fact, I try not to even call them distractors anymore. They're answer options. And those answer options should be aligned with things that we know the student gets mixed up or confused or misunderstands. So that when a student actually selects one of those, it's telling us something in that data about what the student knows or doesn't know and what their path to mastery is. It's an iterative process because as you can imagine, designing to that detail is, I wouldn't call it difficult, it's more thoughtful than I was used to in the past. It's harder because I have to list it out of subject matter experts now, not just the expertise of the domain, but I need them to think about when they design a problem for a student to work through, what are all the wrong answers that student's going to select? And then what is the feedback or what would a tutor say as the student was working through that if you were one-on-one -on -one with a student and kind of thinking about that ahead of time and building that into the system so that learning is taking place even when the students aren't getting things right. And actually that's even better because then that tells us more when we get the data back about where the student misconceptions are. And then it's using tricks like if you can't figure out that data or what the answer options are, weaving in some open-ended questions that usually can't be, at least not now, in the future, I'm sure, can be evaluated by the system itself. But taking those open-ended responses and then using that to build and iterate on the types of problems that you're building in that can collect data, that are what we call data collecting questions. So there's a lot to it, but in a nutshell, I think it's really just that evolution of that deeper design. I mean, I can remember a time when 
instructional designers were mere editors. I can remember working with folks who would say, no, I'm the expert. I know what I need to tell students. And you're just here to make sure I'm doing it okay. And then I've seen them evolve to where subject matter experts, teachers, people who know the learning process and work with students every day start to say, oh, that expertise you have is really, really valuable in helping me be a better teacher. And then it was learning engineering and working with teachers who said, you've now given me a different way of thinking about teaching, was helping folks come out of that. I'm going to tell the students this to being more student-centered and thinking, what do the students need to know? And really starting to understand how learning objectives help them as teachers. That isn't something just an instructional designer does. It's something that they should be thinking about as well and working with the instructional designer and now learning engineers to design that carefully. What I like so well about what you're saying, Erin, is that it's a complement to instructional design. And it may be an extension. It may be an iteration of certain parts of it. But the complement of the work that we've been doing for the last number of years, especially as it relates to places where instructional designers do have skills, but maybe it's not been a place where we've focused. And I really noticed it as you were talking about the iteration within the design work itself. I think for so many instructional designers, we have learned to think at the meta level. We're thinking about this as a throughput process. And while there are adjustments we make in our modeling, in fact, most of us tend to look at the beginning, we look at the end, and we focus on the process of creating the content with experience wrapped around it. But it's really a matter of starting at the beginning and focusing on a process model as opposed to the iterative design that many of we designers just take for granted where we are, in fact, doing these adjustments that you talk about. The thing that's changed in most of our design worlds is with data being as prevalent as it can be in so many of the technology systems we use, a lot of instructional designers who haven't learned to use data coming from tech systems continue to use that throughput process model without realizing how much feedback we have at our fingertips to do the iteration as we're doing our work. And that has become something I've seen you do in your work where you couldn't not iterate as you're doing your efforts right now. You have feedback coming almost at every single point of the work that you do. That's right. That's right. And it's not to say that instructional designers wouldn't want access to this data and be know how to use it. I think part of the problem is, is they haven't been given the experience of getting that kind of data because not a whole lot of systems out there that they work on collect data at that level. It's their content isn't instrumented that purposefully to get that kind of data. I think if they had access to it, they would certainly love it and use it daily in their work. There's a lot of specialties in instructional design. There's people who are media specialists who understand how to develop media for instructional purposes. Or people who are actually doing research on the background that we bring into our practice. Having scholars who are really focused on the research that drives our questions, we in the practice world might not need as much of that research, but if we couldn't count on having that available to us, we wouldn't be as effective. So to your point, lots of people with lots of expertise upon which we've built our designs, but I don't know that we've necessarily known how much more deeply we could depend on some of our expertise partners. And engineering just happens to be one of those, which as technology has become so much more complex and we need so much more of the technical knowledge to make sure that the systems can't interoperate 
to serve our purposes better, that we just need people who understand how those things can help serve our purposes better to get all of our work done. That's been a big shift. It has. Another thing I learned in becoming a, a learning engineer is also trying to think of innovative ways to collect that data at the same time you're providing practice to students. I think a big part of learning engineering is also understanding how the systems work that you're working in and what's underlying those so that you can make realistic suggestions and designs of new things, new innovative things and, that don't exist at all yet. And so you have to have that understanding so that you're not asking essentially for magic, that you, ha you can speak the language with the tech and with the software engineers to be able to say, okay, spec things out in a way that you can produce some really cool stuff that engage the students, but also collect that data at the steps that you need it to understand where they're going wrong. I want to ask you about some specific tools that Carnegie Mellon is known for. You, you folks had been leaders in open education resources, particularly around tools that allow people to do much of this type of deeper exploratory work with technology. And in the last couple of years, you released these tools to the world at large for all to use. It's one thing to release all these tools for free to the world at large to do all their work. It's another thing to expect teachers, practitioners, professors of the practice and scholars to be able to take all these tools and know what to do with them. I happen to know that that's one of the places where you sit these days, which is to help people understand what to do with this incredible set of resources and assets as they're trying to figure out what else they can do in their practice. So there you sit on this amazing array of resources. And Aaron, what do you do to help people understand just what they can do to crack open this amazing data set, this tool set? Yes, that's exactly where I sit every day. Uh, <laughs> we, we have a number of fantastic tools that were created by learning researchers. I tend to say they were created by learning researchers for learning researchers, but that doesn't mean that they're not valuable to everyone out there. And so the tools are the ability to instrument content with our open learning initiative delivery system and authoring system. There are analysis tools and data repositories like DataShop and LearnSphere. LearnSphere will actually allow you to set up workflows of analyses with the data that you collect in a way that they can be repeated. And there's really low level, low barrier tools in there for example, we have something where teachers could upload their grade book and see with a, you know, a push button, which of the things in their grade book are contributing most to students mastering at the final exam time. There's also lots of more deeper analyses you can do. And then we have tools like Bazaar that allow you to have a discussion and a chat bot added to your course. And again, all of these are created to collect data at the level that you need it so that you can understand where the students are struggling. And all of that is so that you can iterate on your design and make things better. So you can see what content students are struggling with so that you can build more scaffolding in, in those places. I was just talking the other day to some folks who were saying, you know, what these tools allow you to do that I think you haven't been able to do in the past as an educator, as an instructional designer, is you can make longer lasting products so I've worked in a number of places where if things weren't working for the students, a course that you put out there, a technology, a tool, you throw it all out and you start all over because you don't really know where it's helping or hurting the student. This whole toolkit allows you to have that insight 
so that you can create a product, a learning product that then you just iterate on and tweak exactly where surgically where you know the students need that more scaffolding and help. And then you have a product that can last the test of time because you're not just throwing it all out and starting over, you're actually iterating on it in smaller steps. And you can see the results because the data is showing you that the students are getting better and they're grappling with these concepts in a better way and getting to mastery. And it's really rewarding. And when you're talking learning product here, it's not necessarily that every single teacher on the planet or every single faculty member on the planet is going to be expected to create software. What you're talking about here is a lesson that is able to be constructed in ways that perhaps use technology tools. So there might be some construction being expected here. But in fact, this is a design to facilitate and promote learning on the part of those who will experience the lesson, if you will, that has been put together. In many respects, it's not that different than what teachers have been expected to do all along. It's just that right now, what we're talking about is a little bit more accountability being wrapped around the edges because, in fact, we are leaving little traces of what we're doing as we're doing the work. Why not look behind at what we have left in our tracks to see what it is that we've done, right? Right, right, right. And it's that ability to tag that content. By the way, what makes this all possible is the ability to tag really small pieces of content to outcomes so that you're not looking at the data through the lens of click streams and page views. You're actually looking at it in terms of how it services each learning outcome that you want the student to master. It's something that everyone who designs learning cares about but now these tools are becoming available and they require just a little more specialty and maybe even a different kind of curiosity. You know, we're all curious. That's what I think is the at the heart of instructional design is that curiosity, that natural curiosity, wanting to learn new things all the time that drives it. And now I can see insights into things that I couldn't before. And it's just driving that curiosity even further. What I've appreciated for myself in this work is that it allows my creativity to extend further than it could on my own. While I know where data may need to be leveraged, I might not necessarily have all those skills, but I can find people who do understand those needs and those skills and those processes. And this is where, for those of us who are working in learning and development these days, understanding that there's lots and lots of things that many of us do and develop expertise to do in this entire throughput model of creating producing, evaluating, and taking learning materials and products to our students that no one of us ever does all of these. Well, in fact, I suppose there are a few of us who have to do a lot more of these things than maybe we would like to do in some of our environments. But very few of us are the ones who are doing all of it anymore. I just had this conversation the other day where someone asked me, what would it take to build the most beautiful and effective course? And I said, well, what I would need to do that is not just a learning engineer, but instructional designers, media developers, editors, possibly a software engineer that is at my disposal <laughs> in a way to, to build things, new things. It does take a village really to build something that is, I don't want to call it perfect because I don't believe anything's perfect. You're always going to iterate, but both beautiful, engaging, and effective. And it's not easy, but I'll tell you, it's really fun, <laughs> you know? And again, that investment is really important 
and worth it because you're going to have this longer lasting iterative process that you'll work on to just make it better and better all the time. Sometimes people don't like all the emphasis on data. There are some people in education, in fact, that are fairly certain that all these data are just really part of a surveillance a surveillance economy. In fact, I, I have heard some pundits refer to learning engineering as sort of the epitome of surveillance capitalism. I think the agents of surveillance capitalism was the way I heard learning engineers described. It made me sort of step back a minute. And I suppose I can appreciate where that might come from if one views that all data are being used in nefarious ways. And I think what we all have to remember is that data are used in ways that may be nefarious or may not be. It depends on the intent of the individual user. Data in and of themselves are not nefarious, but the representation of what they can be used for is significant. And the fact that they did, in fact, reveal to many of us when we first started taking a look at them in our excitement of, oh my gosh, look at all we can learn about our students. And we started seeing some pretty awful patterns of bias and of the fact that maybe we weren't being as equitable as we would have wanted to believe in our well-intentioned hearts, that the data just gives you the story of the patterns. And when you see the things that we're doing that aren't as good as we would have wanted, the opportunity to fix some of the areas that are broken, to acknowledge the bias that exists, and to address it actively because we have the numbers, has been a very strong part of what we can do to try to rectify the situation. So like you, I've looked at this the awareness that we can draw toward ways of rising up and doing better has been inspiring. The data helps me be even a better advocate for the learners because now I have something to point to to say, see, yes, we are doing this. And this isn't, is this really what we want to be doing? Or, or let's change it and then see again with data how that impacts the learner. And it helps me. I don't need to know who the learners are. I don't need to see deeply in terms of who that data is attached to necessarily. I just need to see the patterns and say, generally, this isn't the way we want to go or this isn't the direction we want to take our learners. The data helps me be even a better advocate. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you can't fix things that you don't know if they're broken. And the idea of having data that can reveal some of the things that we didn't expect or that we didn't understand has been probably the best experience for me of being able to work with the data. Is it dangerous to manipulate data? Well, sure. Is it dangerous to use any number of the things in our world that can be used to bring harm to people? Well, of course. This is why we need to know what we're dealing with to establish cultural values around how we can use these things better and to have a practice that, in fact, teaches ourselves to be leaders in how we can not only not do harm, but how we can really leverage these things to do better jobs. I think that that's an awfully darn exciting thing for us to be able to use as our goals. It is. And one of the reasons why I'm excited about interoperability is because of what I said earlier, not too many folks, learning designers, have had access to that kind of data, that instrumentation. I think that's something that's going to drive us all to see more of it and be able to get our hands on it and actually start to understand how it really helps our design process even more. I think that your excitement for this is so catching that, well, it certainly inspired me because at the end of the day, if we can see the progress that we're making and we can show people the results, it's what keeps us going. It, it motivates and inspires and it helps bring other people to the table because we can really see the impact of the efforts that we're putting into the work that we do. And what more could you ask than that? I wanted to say, by the way, I am not a data scientist. I am not an engineer in terms of software engineering. I am really just an instructional designer who got lucky 
to have access to this data and instrumented content in this way. And it's just gotten me so excited about how it informs my designs. And I just hope that everybody can eventually get access to the same stuff so that they can see how exciting it can be. Well, thank you so much for sharing your excitement with us. This is certainly going to be something so many of us are going to have to imagine how we bring this into our practice. And what you've shown us is that it doesn't have to bring fear and trepidation. It's an opportunity to open some doors, bring in some sunlight, and really raise the bar on what we can do to help learners achieve some of the hopes and dreams that they have in front of them. So I just really want to thank you so much for sharing your excitement for learning engineering today. Absolutely. And you're welcome. And thank you for having me. This has been fun. Thanks, everybody.